Please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've arrived this week at verses 16 to 23 of chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ And Christ belongs to God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what was the nature of the conflict arising among the Corinthians? We read of it in chapter 1 where Paul says to them as he writes, he says, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. So that's the context for what we're reading today in chapter 3. And this has been a theme that Paul has been dealing with. He's trying to bring peace and unity to a church that's divided. And they're divided over high principles, And this is something we always need to remember. When we think that we have very, very good reason to separate ourselves from others, um, very often those good reasons masquerade uh, are the way that we, that things that are very evil and sinful masquerade as. So that we can say, well, you know, I have a principle that keeps me from being able to fellowship with, or, you know, I have a certain pastor, a certain a blog writer or a certain parachurch leader that I favor, and my friend doesn't think he's any good, and so we're divided. And so what we do is we line up behind different people, but really the people are immaterial. If, if, If this pastor or this writer was not in front of us, we'd choose somebody else. The point is not them. The point is us. We're using them to divide from other people. And what we see is they lined up behind Paul, they lined up behind Apollos, they lined up behind Cephas, who is uh, Peter, another name that Peter had, and they lined up behind Christ. And they're divided, and that theme now comes back to us here because you see in verse 22, Paul says whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And so he's, he's making an allusion to this division. And this is still what he's dealing with. Now, how does what we have read today deal with division? Well, what he's saying in verse 16 is, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
Now, many of us have had this used to explain to us why we shouldn't smoke or do drugs or get venereal disease or, you know, anything that would harm our bodies. And so, you know, somebody has said to us, well, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in a way, that's a proper application of this. But what this is speaking of here is the temple of the church. And God today in the New Testament, God dwells not in a place that's been built according to the specifications that God gave to Moses, um, to Solomon, but today God dwells in his people. And so we're very careful when we use this church to refer to this church as the church house and not to refer to it as the church. The church isn't the steeple. The church is the people. All right. And so this building is not the church. You are the church. And so when the Apostle Paul writes here saying, do you not know that you're a temple of God? He's he's talking to the gathered, assembled Christians. And he's saying to them all, you are God's temple. You are the building. And he says, do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And so what makes you a temple is that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has come to dwell within you. And that unites you to other Christians. And so, for instance, the elders of this church, when they interview you for membership, the whole point is for them to evaluate the testimony that you have of true faith in Jesus Christ so that when they put all of us together into a particular congregation, it's not filled with people who don't have the Holy Spirit because they don't believe. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, don't you know, you as a congregation, as a church, you're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, why is he saying this? What application or what connection does this have to the division that's in the Corinthian church? Well, then he goes on, he says this, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Don't you know, you're the temple of God. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, anybody that destroys the temple of God, God's going to destroy him. And so what he's saying is that these leaders of yours who have allowed you to be involved in incest, you remember 1 Corinthians is the book where the incest happens, who have allowed, who have allowed the rich people to eat and to get drunk at the Lord's Supper while the poor people have nothing, all right? Okay, who have allowed you to uh, use tongues to trump prophecy, because it's very easy for tongues to trump prophecy. Everybody loves to listen to tongues because tongues being interpreted are always, oh, my people, I love you so much. (laughs) And prophecy, not so much. This is the church. And what he's saying to you is when these people destroy the church, they're destroying the temple of God. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Don't you know? You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. People, you're holy. And yet here you have pastors and and, and teachers and officers who are 
making you profane. You are holy. You're the temple of God. If you're following leaders who are allowing you to be proud when you have a man sleeping with his father's wife in your midst, people, you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, you you begin to feel the tension here. And you think, okay, so the Apostle Paul is telling them they are to reject the teachers who are profaning God's temple, who are misleading them, who are destroying the holiness that is to be at the center of the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is bringing unity to the church of Corinth by dividing the people from their pastors. Does this make sense to you? Anybody who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. You're to be holy. You have the Holy Spirit. These people are teaching you not to bother being holy. Just go with the flow. Just hang out. Just be like, cool, dude. All right? People, you're the temple of God. It's to be holy. You have the Holy Spirit in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now you begin to feel it, right? And it's, it's the fact of Scripture that we make a big show of avoiding the mistakes of the people in Scripture while committing our own mistakes and failing to see how the two are in any way related. And so when I tell you that they had rich people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, we feel so pious and holy because we've reduced it to tiny little cups that nobody could ever get drunk on. And no rich person could ever whoop up on poor people at our table because it's completely parsimonious. And furthermore, we've taken it a step farther and we don't even have alcohol. We have grape juice. And we, we are so smug that we have corrected the errors that constantly, you know, come into the church. No rich person could ever make much of their riches at our table. It's completely stingy. In fact, stinginess is a principle with us Presbyterians. Me, Presbyterian. So I want you to enter back into the text and I want you to feel it in your bones so that you begin to think that if you think that you've avoided the error of the people in the Bible, that you aren't being very self-critical, that you're not real self-aware, that you're not real um, astute, that the noggin that God has given you in the gray matter are really pretty lazy and fat. So let's go back to it and let's see what he's saying here. Do you not know, don't you know, rhetorical question, don't you know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? And at this point, those of us who are Christians will say, yes, I do know that I am the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells within me. And I know as a part of Church of the Good Shepherd that we are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Yes, I'm on board. Okay, the answer to that question Rhetorically, it's yes. I I get it. It's yes. All right. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
and we go, okay, yeah, but nobody's trying to destroy this church. We're united. We don't have divisions. And so, you know, it doesn't compute. Does not compute. Hard drive full. And then let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Now, what about that? Let's assume nobody's trying to divide this church and nobody's trying to destroy the temple of God known as Church of the Good Shepherd. Skip over that verse and go to 18. Let no man deceive himself if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Do any of us think that we are wise in this age? Do any of us think that we are perceptive, that we are missional, that we're contextualized? Do any of us think that we understand better than our teachers and preachers how to convey God's truth in this late time? Do any of us think that we understand what parts of the Bible are to be taken literally and what parts are to be taken figuratively? What parts are the product of an ancient patriarchal culture and what parts are perfectly applicable to us today? In other words, when the Apostle Paul writes, saying, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Let no man deceive himself. Does that part touch us? Let's assume there's no division in this church, and so we don't have to worry about anybody trying to destroy the temple of God. We don't have to worry about anybody turning what is holy into what is profane and secular. That doesn't go on here. We're safe. We've been protected well by the elders of this church. All right, fine. Set that to the side. Now ask yourself, do any of you think you're wise? Do any of you think that you have it pretty good, your understanding of how Scripture applies today, that you're able to contextualize it, that you're missional, that you're um, very understanding of other cultures, Or, let's say that you think that you understand better than Pastor Bailey does how to present the gospel to an academic context. I remember about 18 years ago talking to a man who had been a pastor in Bloomington, and we were talking about how he'd done his work, and I had just arrived, and how I would do my work. And in the middle of the conversation... He said to me, I was asking his advice, and he gave me a piece of advice. He said, Tim, uh, you know, I'm concerned about you holding to the submission of wives to their husbands and the male eldership and pastorate. In other words, I'm concerned that you don't believe in having women pastors and elders because... And then he said, he did have a doctorate. I should tell you that the terminated degree, or terminal, or I forget. Can't remember what it's called. 
He said, I'm concerned about you not being able to relate to the students because of your position on manhood and womanhood. And what he was saying was, I don't think you're going to have many students in your church. And you certainly won't have any professors. Not of Jesus. Professors of the academy. I mean, I'm not saying the two are mutually exclusive, you understand. I'm just trying to make it clear that when I use the word professor, I'm not referring to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You ever wonder, what should a professor profess? It's a good question if you're thinking of becoming a professor someday. What ought a professor to profess? Should he make sure never to profess the things that are sacred, but only to profess the things that are profane? Thucydides? If... Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And what this is teaching us is that you can get a PhD and then you can do postdoctoral work anywhere you want. You can be published in every journal that you've submitted to. You can be chairman of the department, although that probably is more a negative indicator of intellectual acumen than it is a positive one. It just means you're able to do politics well. You can be the cream of the crop when it comes to the academy. And the Bible says it's not until you are committed to and pursue foolishness as the world sees it that you will begin to become wise. What this means is that all the learning of this world, the arts, the sciences, every single bit of it does not begin to be true until it is operated upon, written, spoken by those who have become fools for Jesus Christ. What this means is that Cardinal Newman was right in the idea of the university when he said that theology is the queen of the sciences, and that no university is worthy of the name that does not have theology at the top. And then we think about the entire academic enterprise of the United States of America today, at least, which has eviscerated the academy of the foolishness of Jesus Christ and of Scripture. And in fact, if you were to take the Bible, and what it actually says, and you were to take its principles, its truths, its commands, and you were to bring them into the academy today, everybody would call you what? They'd call you a fool. If you were to take the account of God's creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, of the first couple of chapters of Genesis, and you were to take it onto the campus, everybody here knows you may not, must not, shall not, will not do that. If you were to take on to the university the doctrine of Scripture that anybody that offers their children to Moloch must be killed, Leviticus 20, 
Because it was very common in Canaan for them to take their children, the most priceless possession, and give them to their gods, burn them up. It was an act of religious worship. Just as Planned Parenthood takes your children, you burn them up today on the altar of self-determination, autonomy, respect, whatever it is, whatever our gods are. If you were to take that onto the campus, you would be taking the foolishness of Christ. You would be considered a fool. If you were to take onto campus the, the bifurcation, not try or infidication or googleification, but the bifurcation, which means two, twoification of sexuality, man, woman, not a continuum, not gender, man, woman, sex, all right, onto the campus, you would be considered a fool. Do you understand this? Every single day in every class you go to, here's an idea. Take Jesus with you and have him sitting in the seat next to you and listen through his ears. Read your text through his eyes and his word. And what's going to happen is, all of a sudden, what you thought was stereo is going to turn out to be mono. Let alone 5.1 or 7.1. All of a sudden, with God at the university, astronomy will start to be astronomy. Sociology will start to, history will start to be history. Can you imagine studying the history of the Western world without knowing the church and Jesus Christ and the word of God? How do you understand the Western world without Jesus? I had the problem a couple years ago of being asked to come into Bloomington North and explain to them the Reformation. And as I thought about it, I thought, how on earth do you explain people putting their lives on the line for the sake of justification by faith alone? How do you do that? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that does not compute hard drive full. Of what? Well, I won't use the word because there are women present. But you know what the hard drives are full of. And so I decided that what I really needed to do was to open up to these kids the fact that they have an immortal soul because they're all complete materialists. And they have no concept of their soul. Their soul has been dragged through unbelievable filth. Their conscience is almost dead, let alone the judgment seat of God and eternity of hell and heaven. And so then the question is, if you can't get to the Reformation until you have them convinced that they have a soul, how on earth do you teach people that they have a soul? (laughs) How do you teach people that they have a soul? And yet, today, the world is filled with people who believe that sex is hooking up. And you know it's not. Hooking up is not sex. Hooking up is copulation. But sex is beautiful. Sex is love. When a man isn't loving his wife and he has sex, it's not sex. (laughs) And his wife will tell him that. 
And so we go on to the campus and we see the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research. And what did Kinsey, who was a zoologist, what did he come up with? He came up with numbers. Numbers. That's all he came up with. Numbers. And he thought that he had deep wisdom because he, he counted things. He thought he was wise, didn't he? And Margaret Mead, when she read this, the Kinsey research, she gave a talk. Margaret Mead. And you know what she said? She said, this is completely wrong because she said, what we're doing is we're exposing to the world to see things that should be hidden in the privacy of a bedroom. And she said, a lot of our morality depends upon people not being able to know what each other does in their bedroom. This is Margaret Kinsey. I mean, Margaret Mead. And she said, what will happen is because of this supposed human wisdom, people will end up not knowing why they go to bed with a man or woman instead of a dog or a cat or a pig. And she said this back decades ago. And she's a pagan. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Here is what God says. God says... Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. So, all the learning of the world separated from Jesus Christ and the word of God is foolishness. And if your parents paid for the tuition or the taxpayers of Indiana pay for your tuition for you to become wise... The most important thing for you to do is to immerse yourself in the preaching of the word of God so that you can begin to understand astrology and astronomy. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And so you can begin to understand physiology. So you can begin to understand mathematics let alone political science. I mean, how does anybody understand the American political system and the Constitution who doesn't know about the depravity of man and that the framers of our Constitution believed in the depravity of man and therefore set up balance of power? How does anybody understand political science, the American, the U.S. Constitution? How do they begin to understand that without knowing God and his word? Which says what? It says... Did you hear what was read in Romans today? There is none righteous, no, not one. And then in case you didn't know what unrighteousness meant, it goes on and it lists it. And then it says the thing that's more horrifying than anything else. It says, in them there is no what? There's no fear of God. And so here we see this church, it's divided. It's divided on high principles. Paul, Cephas, Jesus... Apollos, right? High principles. And the way the Apostle Paul deals with it is by saying to them, you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And so what was happening was their teachers were coming into the church and saying, there's absolutely no reason for us to be holy. Holiness gets in the way today. 
We can't be missional, we can't be contextualized, and we can't do evangelism unless we throw out holiness today. Throw it out! Get rid of it! And so how do we get rid of holiness today? Well, here's how we do it. We take any place that's a speed bump to the materialists among us, and we level it. We make the hills and the valleys level. And so if the Bible says that you are not, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is sexual uncleanness, we don't talk about it except if you have a sin to confess privately. We don't preach about it. We don't command wives and husbands to give their bodies to each other and therefore avoid sexual sin. Think about this. The Apostle Paul, writing for all history to read, says, don't withhold your bodies from one another. And I wonder how many of you have heard a sermon on the duty of husbands to have sex with their wives instead of their computers. The Apostle Paul was apparently knowledgeable of his flock. How is it that we have so many shepherds today who apparently know nothing about ours? Well, it's because pastors today are intent upon making what is holy profane. They are intent upon removing anything that makes us separated to Jesus so that more people will come to church and they will get a higher salary. And the elders make it a principle. If the pastor ever does try to put up a speed bump in front of anybody in churches today, he goes into the elders meeting and it starts every single month. Come to our elders meetings and you'll see this. It starts with the elders saying, how has Pastor Bailey been doing this past month in his preaching? Is it contextualized? Is it wise in the world's eyes? Or is it holy? They say, well, he mentioned wives submitting to their husbands this month. Pastor Bailey, hold out your hand. They have a little ruler in there. And they go, whop! And I say, it's a small price to pay for faithfulness. And then they say, all right, how has Pastor Bailey done in terms of his illustrations? Are they engaging or are they uh, setting your teeth on edge? Have you felt this last month, any of you ever felt like Pastor Bailey was taking his fingernails on a blackboard, scratching them down? You've never had blackboards, so... Maybe rubbing two pieces of styrofoam against each other, you know? And they go, yep, 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 yep. Not only that, but the people in my small group, every single one of them complains every week about feeling like they've been in church and they had styrofoam rubbed against each other. Pastor Bailey, hold out your hand. Whop, 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 whop. Because elders are so wise. They're so wise that they know that if we're going to have a church that pays for the building, what we have to do is have a pastor who makes the church profane, who is able to sell Christianity in such a way that what is carefully calculated by the Holy Spirit to obliterate a man's life as he knew it formerly and to change him into a new creation is carefully, carefully presented in such a way as to make a man think that there's no change needed. It's just that he has to hear what Jesus did and then the life he had has the added benefit of heaven. And that's it. 
just announce to the people that we're all Christians if we believe in Jesus. And, of course, everybody who's an American believes in Jesus. And so we all believe in Jesus. We're all saved. And there ain't no speed bumps, no submission for women, no leadership for men, no love of husbands, no honoring of parents. You can have whatever you want on your laptop. And you can be proud. I mean, that's the real benefit in Bloomington. You know, the whole point of Bloomington is to not be the rest of Indiana. I mean, we're not Martinsville, and we're not Clay County, and isn't it nice to have arrived? But you know, most of you are going to have to go, and I'll stay here permanently. Nanny, nanny, poo, poo. (laughs) And so the church, which is called by God to be holy, to be holy hides sin, gets rid of speed bumps, gets pastors who know how to sell Christianity to you in such a way that it never wounds you at all. Maybe a tiny little wound when you first get baptized, but then that humiliation is done. Kierkegaard says it's good if a barber knows how to take your beard without hurting you. But he says, if a preacher knows how to preach without hurting you. And so you see what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, let no man deceive himself. And that must mean that all of us tend to deceive ourselves, right? (laughs) Oh, yes. Please nod your heads yes like D. As preachers need people who agree. Do you know your ability to deceive yourself? Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Do you realize that if this church is to be united, the only people that will be united in this church are the fools. And it will spit out the wise men week after week after week, and they will not return. Because the minute the wise men, as the world understands wisdom, you understand, the minute the wise men stay here, it's all over. Do you understand this? It's all over. There will not be unity anymore. And if there is unity, it will be uniformity according to political correctness. And that means true believers in Jesus Christ will no longer be at home here. Because what fellowship has light with darkness? The only way this church can be united, the only way the Corinthian church could be united, is when everybody had a conspiracy for foolishness. Everybody agreed to be fools, submitted to the word of God. Do you understand this? If you're going to submit yourself to the word of God, you will be a fool in the eyes of the world. My dad grew up in New York City, and there was an Episcopal bishop named Daddy Hall. 
And Daddy Hall had a pastor's college, just like we do. And one of the duties of the men in the pastor's college was that they would go out with sandwich boards and walk the streets of New York City. So my dad grew up watching these fools walking up and down the street with sandwich boards, and Daddy Hall would determine what they'd write on their boards. And my father told me that his favorite board was the one where as the man walked towards you, it said on the front, I'm a fool for Christ. And then when he went by you and you looked at his rear, it said, whose fool are you? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. It's not that wisdom is not good. It's that the only way to get wisdom is to submit yourself to the word of God. And until you submit yourself, your large gray matter, your degrees, your books, your iTunes, everything in them, your iPods, everything in them, until you submit them to the word of God, which is to submit them to Jesus Christ. Not until then is there a hint of wisdom in you. And once you stop thinking about what your roommate will think about you and what your parents will think about you and what your preacher friends will think about you and what your professors will think about you, it's not until you stop thinking about the world and think about God that you will begin to have a chance at wisdom. A chance at wisdom. Because outside of Christ, absolutely everything is lockstep, uniformity, conformity, completely predictable bondage to Satan. I got an email yesterday from a friend who normally is very wise, but this time he wasn't. And he sent to me and to everybody else he ever knew this thing about Barack Obama. I should have brought it and read it, uh, except I won't. I won't give it to anybody because it's complete baloney. It's just typical conservative crud about how Barack Obama is part of a great conspiracy to make the United States socialist, and he's doing what his professor so-and-so said, and I know because I used to be a classmate of his back in such-and-such. Such. Have any of you seen this email? Okay, you've seen the email. Anybody else? All right, I've seen it. She's seen it. All right. And I'm reading this thing, and I'm thinking, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's the perfect satanic tool, this email about Barack Obama. And why do I say it's satanic? Well, it's satanic because it makes us believe that the real conspiracy is people trying to bring socialism to America. <laughs> people, we've had it for decades. <laughs> I mean, it's like yawn. And as we worry ourselves about which professor taught Barack Obama this, which he's created a financial catastrophe so that he then can save us by having government grow and all this bunk, nobody's thinking about the fact that outside of Christ and outside of the word of God, there is no freedom. The problem isn't a socialist conspiracy. 
The problem is a satanic conspiracy. And if you think Satan is so stupid as to put a black man into the White House who's a socialist so that we can all get up in arms about the black socialist, (laughs) it's like absurd. It's like, how about if we appeal to racism and the natural phobia about academia that everybody has and the hatred of communism and we can just get them all together, clomp them together, and we have a real boogeyman. It's like, come on, guys. Here's the boogeyman. If any man thinks that he's wise, he is in bondage to Satan. He will divide the church. He will repudiate holiness. I don't care if he talks about Jesus Christ. I don't care if he's a pastor. He is an instrument of Satan. That's the conspiracy. And All you have to do to be a part of it and to walk in lockstep conformity with everybody else is simply think that you have greater wisdom than the specific commands and words of the Bible. That's it. That's all it takes. Put yourself in judgment over the word of God at any point that you hate it and you are a fool as God sees you even though you're wise as the world sees you. But if by faith you say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm done with my brain. I'm done with all these intellectuals that try to intimidate me and goad me into giving up you. And from now on, I will submit to you. I have natural inclinations not to love my wife. I will confess them publicly and ask for prayer. I have natural inclinations to have sex with every walking creature. I will, com- I will confess my sin and ask for prayer. I have natural inclinations to be a rebel against my husband. I will confess it as sin and ask for prayer. I have natural inclinations to spend every bit of money I have on myself. I will confess it as sin and ask for prayer. I'm so embarrassed to even read Genesis 1 to 3, and I need to come up with some cosmic explanation because I'm a biologist, and you know, biology is a hard science. Not. (laughs) I will confess it as sin and ask for prayer. Here we have a church which is united. It really is. The elders' meetings, the elders goad me on to the stupidity of Jesus. They goad me. Never, ever punish me for being foolish. Never. And so you know what this church does? This church spits out worldly wise creatures right and left. It would be a fascinating thing to do like a sped up photography, video photography of our church every year as school begins. You know, like, (laughs) you know, lots of people, no people, lots of people, no people. Every year we go through this. Last Sunday, I got done. I I said to everybody that I work with, I'm not preaching next Sunday. 
because you get done, I get done looking at you, and it's awful. You should see your faces. It's awful. The unbelief, the faithlessness, and the fear of students starting at IU. Every year I face it, and every year I know what's coming. But every year, we have more and more history as a church. History of repentance. (laughs) And so I carefully choose who I look at. And I remember your stories. And I'm willing to be a fool again. And you listen to me preach, and you're willing to be a fool again. It's, 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 it's like so cosmic. It's like symbiosis. It's like I'm a fool, so you'll be a fool. Or you're a fool, so I can be a fool. And we're all fools for Christ. Whose fool are you? Whose fool are you? You are going to be a fool. You will be a fool. And the only question is, whose fool you'll be? I say, be a fool for Christ. Because if nothing else, when you write a paper, your professor will actually think it's interesting. Because propaganda gets so terribly boring. (laughs) I mean, honestly. Give the professors something to read that causes them to stay awake. (laughs) Honestly. Honestly. And so the text is clear. Those who try to obliterate the holiness of the church of Jesus Christ, those who try to remove the teaching against abortion, against feminism, against materialism, against lust, those who try to destroy the church will themselves be destroyed by God because you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And that's not so bad. I mean, it's mortifying. (laughs) You know, it's humiliating. I mean, you lose your job, right? Sometimes you don't get the doctorate. Sometimes the, the, the committee breaks down. But when you stand before God, he says what? He says, well done. Good and faithful servant. Now enter my rest. That must mean that before you get there, you're not in rest. (laughs) Enter my rest, right? One other thing before I stop. For some reason, nobody's giving me fingers today. Did you decide not to do it? I haven't looked at my watch. Now I've looked. It's awful. (laughs) Did you give me fingers? Did you really? I must have missed them. We have an internal discipline that often fails. (laughs) All right. Um, One final thing. It says down in verse 21, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And the reason it says that is that it's reminding you as Christians that your preachers belong to you and you don't belong to them. Because preachers are always going to try to flip it around so that this is my church instead of yours and so that I own you instead of you owning me. And what he's saying is Christians own their pastors. Churches own their pastors. 
Their pastors don't own their churches. Because why? Because you belong to Christ. And so everything belongs to you. When you go into the professor's office this week, when you go into your dorm room, when you go into wherever you go, remind yourself that since you belong to Christ, your professor, that classroom, your dorm room, your marriage, your bedroom belongs to you. You own it because you own everything in Christ. There's nothing that doesn't belong to you because there's nothing that doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. So don't let him get you down. Don't let him get you down. You're unbelievably wealthy. You have a master who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so there's no need for anybody to feel sorry for you. No need.